we're back. I'm not Drew McGarry. I'm David Roth, and this is The Distraction. Drew is on vacation with his family, uh, eating those little mozzarella balls, wearing his rash guard and avoiding sunburn, uh, which means it's me and the legend, Ray Ratto, uh, joining for a, a two-hander. Ray, good morning to you. How are you? Hi, Dad. How are you? <laughs> this was one of the rare uh, pairings that people actually request in the uh, comments under the posts that I put up on Defector um, with these podcasts embedded in them. Most of the time, they're like, you know, asking uh, either Drew to keep it down or for me to take like a long vacation. But there was an episode that you and I did, which I remember being almost entirely about like your personal memories of Atlee Hammaker uh, that apparently really made an impression on people. We're going to get to that. um, But I wanted to start with the, you know, the news that everybody is talking about, which is uh, our website becoming a Mets blog. Um, I wrote about Jacob deGrom earlier this week, which is something that I've been afraid to do for a long time because of jinxing it. And you wrote the post that I probably should have written, which went up immediately afterwards, which was about Dan Vogelback scoring from first base on a double uh, that was slightly misplayed in the outfield. Uh, sorry to make you write about the Mets. Like, how are you uh, holding up under the strains of uh, having to, you know, like sort of investigate and begin to get into like writing a long Carlos Carrasco bit. Well, I, I have a, I have a rash that, (laughs) but other than that, it was relatively painless. And as the second best thing to happen this week in baseball, the Vogelbach thing was actually fine. Yeah. He's it's weird. I mean, in some ways I'm going to put myself on the clock with Mets shit. This is not going to be in a full Mets podcast if I can help it. Um, but I can't help it, uh, which is fine. You know, I just know that there's there's like dozens of people listening to this that will get upset if it's like if I'm just doing a roster rundown of the bullpen 15 minutes from now, like they're gone. They're never coming back. Uh, the thing that I wanted to sort of touch on, because like Vogelback is, a, you know, a joy in his own right, a special contributor and a, a most unique baseballing individual. He's also one of the few sort of like low profile dumpy ish trades that the Mets made around the deadline, all of which have worked out smashingly so far, bizarrely. Uh, So there's something to adding these like situational players to a roster and then watching them get better that put me in mind of like, it's the thing that happens with good teams. And I don't know to what extent I'm reasoning backwards from those teams success, or if there's something about like, I guess this is more of a vibe based question. You spent time covering the Giants in the previous decade they were good in ways that I as someone who watched them win the World Series every 24 months never really fully understood how do you know when your team is really good and like what do good teams do um the first tip off for me is do you have a four deep bullpen Mm -hmm. um because even if you have average starters a four deep bullpen can get you out of a ton of jams. And that was one thing the Giants had uh, in surplus in 2010. And then they made these seeming cat and dog deals at the deadline for Cody Ross and Pat Burrell um, that didn't seem to mean much at the time, but they all turned out to be really useful players when uh, September became October. And as a result, um, I just remembered at that point, you know what? That's how you win. You get sort of guys who fit a specific need that you have at the moment that you're not tied in long term to. And you have a bullpen to hide all the mistakes that t- getting guys like that can often make. So that to me, that that's the first tip off for me. And the second tip off. And it was most recently evidenced last year with the Braves is one trade doesn't usually do it. You usually have to go two or three, you know, because nobody's got, you know, all the depth they need covered. Um, You know, maybe the Dodgers do, but the Mets didn't. The Yankees don't. Um, Even Houston had to do some stuff at the deadline. So, Nobody's set. So the trick is to figure out what's the small but pressing need 
that puts you over the top. Maybe not necessarily when you're, you know, trying to win a division, but when you're in the postseason. And it means, you know, often a guy like Vogelbach, you know, who can hit a fastball, um, you know, or Darren Ruff, who's a, you know, similar galoote. Yeah, that's the, uh, I like that as the DH platoon that they're just going with like the full two all beef patties approach to that position. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically, it's 500 pounds of fun. You can't simply cannot beat it. (laughs) The, uh, it just, it's, you know, I, the Mets, I don't know if their bullpen is good enough, but but everything else about them is likable from a competitive standpoint which means that their fans will be largely unbearable between now and the NLCS. Yeah, I fully expect uh, that to be exposed. Like, I am a a proud member, charter member, of the uh, mentally ill Mets fan community, but there's a difference between, I think, the way that my little corner of it performs itself. Like, there's definitely, like, we're going to meet some guys if uh, the Mets make a run in the postseason that are going to, you know, make me want to call strangers on the phone and apologize to them for the guy wearing the same hat as me and how he's acting. But I'm going to cross that bridge when we get to it. I yeah. I found it interesting when you were saying, because I feel like the the multiple moves at the deadline thing is, like, I obviously it worked very well for Atlanta last year. I remember the from the last time the Mets were in the World Series in 2015 that they made one big deal in Ioannis Cespedes. And then at the second waiver deadline, which doesn't exist anymore, they made a bunch of other smaller ones, all of which, again, hit. And I don't know, I mean, obviously, now that that deadline isn't there, it's clear that there's like sort of, and also given the fact that there's so few buyers and that so many of the potential sellers in this year's postseason are like, they've already sold everything. Like, there's really only so much that, uh, you know, I mean, the Rockies didn't give away anybody, but I mean that there is like the teams that are out of it are so far out of it that they're not really like there's nothing left on the Pirates to really even give away beyond. Oh, no, 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 no. Rodolfo Castro. What's that? Rodolfo Castro. He's the uh, well, just because he's in the in the news now, because he, like me, carries his phone with him everywhere so that his uh, pedometer app takes all of his steps into account. Yeah. Oh, no, it, it, it was hilarious. I mean, just. Watching the disgusted third base coach, you know, <laughs> taking his phone from him, you know, desperately wanting to shove it in his ear, but not doing it. Taking anything. And then the umpire, who's basically trying to stifle an open laugh and just pointing at the phone, going, You might want to pick that up. God. It you is know, an unusual. It's kind of funny that it took this long for that to happen. I mean, like, obviously there's some competitive concerns about, but, like, he's not getting text messages from the dugout. Like, I think that this is just someone who, like, maybe forgot that he was involved in an active baseball situation and then found himself kind of out there. uh, Oh, no, no, he clearly, I mean, he clearly had brain bubbles. I mean, you know, (laughs) the thing I remember most distinctly about the Houston Astros in 2017 was that none of their guys got the signals from the other team through butt dials. (laughs) Yeah, it is. But that actually somehow is more sophisticated than the one methodology that we actually know works. Yeah. But plus, plus, and this needs to be, you know, repeated. It's the Pirates. Yeah. The only thing they're trying to do now is finish 12th rather than 13th or 14th. I'm not even sure they're trying to do that. I think that there's a couple of things they could be doing if they were really trying to do that. They are. I mean, whatever. We talk about the bad organizations on here as much as we talk about the good ones. And I I know that I wind up writing about them more often than I wind up writing about the good ones. I think just in the way that, you know, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way sort of scenario that there's like a million different ways to express the institutional cynicism that the pirates and I mean, like, I mean, the Orioles are in the wild card right now, but the Orioles that organizations like that have sort of put out there into the world. What's been weird for me, I guess, with like, the Pirates, you can see that there's like there's talent in their organization. It's very slowly sort of making its way up. I don't know that any Pirates fan could tell you where the ostensible competitive window is there or what the plan is. I think that that like sort of, again, with like the ostensible sellers, that it used to be that you could see a team making those like movements in retrograde and then be like, all right, well, they're trying to, you know, 
stock up on prospects or whatever. The A's did that, I think, officially, but they did do it. I think that this has been a, a big year for teams just sort of bailing guys in the same sort of frantic way that you might uh, shovel water with your hands out of a lifeboat that was taking it on. There's just not like, I feel like there's uh, this like sort of apex mastery at the top of the league where you see like what the Dodgers are doing, which is basically playing better than the 27 Yankees while also running this like super lean, hyper-modern organization. And then there is just pure avant-gardism at the bottom of the league. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, it, it, the, the Nationals are about as Dada as it gets. Yeah, that is... While the Dodgers the Dodgers are basically the Tampa Bay Rays with more money than they can count. So you get to see them more than me. They've lost five games since July 1st, and there was an all-star break in there. But, like, what are they doing? Like, how, like I know how they do it, which is, like, be smart and spend money. But, like... That is not a, a pace that I am accustomed to encountering as a baseball fan. Well, here's the thing. The, the thing that separates them this year is that the division is three teams that are not going to make the postseason, including the Giants, and a Padres team that the Dodgers own. And even though they've had pitching injuries – their two most reliable pitchers this year are their fourth and fifth starters. Right. That's the part because, that always I mean, blows my mind. Just like yeah, wet guys from the farm, and they're great. Yeah, you're just getting French kissed by God at that point. Yeah. I mean, Craig Kimbrell has not been magic. You know, the setup guys have not been extraordinary. But they don't really have an automatic out in the lineup. You know, I mean, maybe if you want to say Gavin Lux, but I mean, he bats, he bats eighth. So also, that's like a pretty good guy to have batting eighth in the sense that that was a, you know, top 25 prospect in the game who like maybe figures it out or maybe doesn't. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that they kept him when they, you know, did their deals, you know, and were cheerfully getting rid of Zach McKinstry instead. But, you know, Mookie Betts beats a 10 game suspension every time. Uh, Trey Turner's been superb. Uh, other than his one crying jag, Freddie Freeman's been incredibly useful. Um, you know, Max Muncy's going to hit 30 home runs and hit about 30. Um, you know, it just, it's, they don't have a guy that you can sort of relax against. You know, even Cody Bellinger will hit two homers on you if you're not careful. Yeah, he did. The so they, they wear pitchers out that way is that they never give you an easy at bat or a stretch of easy at bats in any given inning. It does seem like it's not something that you can like optimize for organizationally, but I've had that thought, I think for a long time, again, like going back to covering the world series in 2015 and that Royals team, which really was, I think like a one-off and is not the sort of thing. I mean, we might all uh, pass on to the next life without having seen another Royals world series win, but that type of team that didn't have, I mean, it was very good pitching, very good bullpen, as you said, but also like it was what you're talking about. They were stressful as hell because they just never fucking made mistakes. Like no mistakes in the field. Every at bat was difficult. Every inning was like, you know, you look up and suddenly you've thrown like 22 pitches in it. There's, it's funny that the Dodgers for a team that like, especially a big spending team, you associate that with like a roster that looks like a fantasy team's roster. And that's not what the Dodgers necessarily look like. They have some really big stars, but there is this sort of like the relentlessness of it. I mean, baseball is hard sooner or later, like, you know, pitchers get beat. It does seem to me that like that as a style, as a way to like sort of as a thing to replicate, if you were trying to like build on something, of all the possible like undervalued assets, the idea of someone being extremely annoying to encounter in a baseball situation seems like something that teams could be trying if they were trying to find more of. Yeah. But the problem with that is you never know when guys are going to be annoying and when they're not. I mean, the giants are a living example. Yeah. Last year they were annoying as hell. Yep. And also never made mistakes, never seemed to have any weaknesses. They Well, they they caught every ball hit at them, and their bullpen was deep. This year, their bullpen is shambolic, and their 
one of the rare Giants teams to be bad defensively in a long time, which is why they're two games under 500 instead of 54 games over it. Yeah, this is the advantage, I guess, of having, you know, sort of the backstop that a couple of like Hall of Fame talents in the middle of your lineup provides is that the Giants seem like I I never understood it, like how they were able to do what they did. But it seems like a lot of it was just, you know, it was this. It was like getting all the little things right and then not having any sort of big hole that an opportunistic team could take advantage of. Yeah. But it's hard because like if everybody is like dialed into within like half a percent of their highest possible outcome, like sooner or later, like you are going to roll snake eyes on that just because baseball's hard. Well, it's not only that baseball's hard. It's that when you don't have that Mookie Betts type guy, you're playing with sort of value neutral players. And the ones that have career years tend to, you know, regress back to the mean the next year. And the Giants had a bunch of guys having career years last year, and they've all regressed this year. I don't know that anybody is having a better year than they had last year, with the possible exception of Austin Slater, who's not going to be the linchpin of any right. team. Yeah, like that's, so, that's good for Austin Slater, but that's not the sort of thing that makes a yeah. difference uh, in the so, postseason, probably. Yeah, so this is a team that was, you know, won 75, 77 games like three years in a row. Then, you know, the 2020 COVID season happened. Then last year, they won every close game there was to have and hit 18 pinch hit home runs, which is a ridiculous figure. Yeah, and you can't just they run that back, back to being that 77 win team. Yeah. So, you know, it turns out that last year was the anomaly by a long shot and that they really are a 77 win team playing like a 77 win team. Or... And this is also possible. It's much stupider than what you just said. Maybe it's the odd years now. And so uh, in 2023, they're going to go back to uh, winning 102 games in ways that nobody can understand. Ah, bullshit. <laughs> so the <laughs> the other team in that division I wanted to talk about, just because it for all that, that I personally am fascinated by, like what makes good teams go and what makes them work, the Padres are taking kind of a different approach to that. Like they are just, they are, doing the thing that if you were to, it's not like exactly Daniel Snyder stuff because the creepery is at more of a Preller label than a a level than a Snyder level, but they have just ladled superstars over the roster and seen what sticks. It seems to me like they are going to, they got swept by the Dodgers. They're not, it's not instantly working. I think they're going to be fine because they have so many good players on their team, but like, what exactly do you think that they're good or do you think that there's something to do with all of that deal smithing pulling a team together that makes it less cohesive or that might just make it harder for them to get it together um well the new owner peter seidler is a scion of the o'malley fan the dodger o'malley's yep and when he bought into the padres he recognized the problem that the padres have always had which is the Dodgers, you know, sit 90 miles away, crushing them from ever expanding their team. There's the California desert to the east of them and the Mexican border just below them. So their chances to make a long lasting impression on baseball are pretty much limited to spending like the Dodgers. And they've done that. I mean, they went out, they spent money on Eric Hosmer and Will Myers. And, you know, even though those didn't take, they they didn't stop doing that. They spent money on Tatis. They spent money on Manny Machado. Now they're going to spend money on Soto. They, they, they went after Darvish. They went after Blake Snell. Um, they've done the thing that most fan bases would love their team to do, which is say, we're going to go for it because not going for it is not an option because we become incredibly irrelevant, incredibly quickly. And this is, you know, this plan has been now like three or four years in the making now. And, you know, we'll see if it bears fruit, but it's the only way the Padres can survive and thrive. And so 
you know, I give them credit for just going for it, just saying, screw it. Yeah, and, I, I think that's like what, as a fan, and even just as somebody who cares about the health of baseball, like you need a few teams that aren't the Dodgers, Yankees, Cardinals, whatever, doing that. Like, otherwise, the league is just top heavy, you know? Like, it's a movie where it's got like three big name stars, and then everybody else is a stuntman who's like doing the Wilhelm screen as they're blasted off of a wall or something like that. I think that. What I want to see happen with the Padres, I think, is for them to sort of knit together into a team in a coherent way. And I don't know, I mean, maybe I'm being like sort of moralizing with it in some ways. I like the idea of a team that's developed in sort of a hybrid way, that there's players that come up together. Padres have still have a lot of that, but they also mean necessarily to make the sort of moves that you need to make to get a player like Juan Soto. You have to sort of take the unsentimental course of just like lopping the top of your farm system off. Well, but they had a farm system that, you know, that allowed them to catch Washington's eye. Yeah. You know, the nationals were trying to get as many high prospects as they could. And everybody mentioned that the Padres were already best positioned to get Soto. Yeah. So I think it's the idea that you have those players available and that you're willing to part with them when it's time to go for it. And the truth is, if you're going to commit to guys like Tatis and Machado and build that pitching staff the way they, they have, you don't have a choice but to go after Soto. And if it means you lop off all the topsoil in your farm system, then you do that and you basically tell your scouts, replace them as quickly as possible while we take care of the majors. And, and Soto's the the I think the case that sort of disproves all the rest of that because it's like the best case scenario for any player in any farm system is that they're almost as good as Juan Soto. So you can't afford to like hug the 19-year-olds that you drafted last year when there's like a guy who's 4 years older than them that's already going to get MVP votes every year for the next decade, right? Like well, there's a level of there's it depends what you're choosing to be sentimental about, I guess. Well, but the other thing is the Giants are a living example of how it can go wrong. Like three years ago, they had all these guys in the minor leagues that everybody was raving about. And boy, the Giants are going to be set when these guys finally hit the bigs. Well, the only guy who has emerged from that group is Joey Bart. And he's still a guy who doesn't make contact about 40% of the time. Yeah. You know, so, you know. If that strategy of waiting for your minor leaguers to suddenly bloom fails you, then you are what the Giants are, which is screwed both ways. The Giants are in position right now where they have to over overspend if they want to get back in the argument. And I don't know if they're in the mood to do that. Yeah. Their owners, actually, I think probably, he's, through his preferences, has shown that he would rather... Uh, max out to Lauren Boebert. And that's his business. Uh, but it is, uh, if I were a fan, I would be frustrated by it. I will say that I'm um, just to remember a Giants prospect quickly before we take the break. Uh, I saw Gary Brown Jr. was on American Ninja Warrior last year, and he actually did pretty well. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We are back. Uh, is me and and Ray Ratto here on the podcast that we do together. Um, I want to um, transition into the stuff that I know uh, people know that only know Ray through his work don't know that his greatest joy is saying nice things about people that he admires. Uh, it's kind of his number one bit. Uh, you wrote something that I thought was really lovely about Vin Scully right after he passed. I know that you don't like it when people use words like lovely to describe you or your work. I also know uh, that Vin Scully has been talked about an awful lot at this point, but not by me. So I <laughs> wanted to do a little bit of it. Uh, yeah, For you, he's he's sort of the little league Gary Cohen. I mean, yeah, <laughs> he's like, I think that, yeah, when another like 60 or 80 years in the booth, he could probably touch what Howie Rose has given us. <laughs> I <laughs> So I'm... And I love Gary Cohen, and I, I even love Howie Rose. What Vin Scully did to me, like, I don't think I understood it until, like, kind of weirdly late in life that he was just up there by himself talking for the entirety of a baseball game. I don't know how to compute 
or like process the talent that he had. Like it seems like it like not just a genius that isn't going to be like replicated by anybody that's calling sports on TV, but like what he did seems so singular that like just to read a description of it, to read yours or to read Eric Nussbaum's and Slate or any of the many that I read, like the thing I kept coming back to was how, like, like where did this guy come from? How does one learn to do shit like that? Um, well, he was trained by two of the best in Red Barber and Ernie Harwell, who was the longtime uh, Tigers, Tigers broadcaster. Yeah. And they both told him the same thing, which is you're there to tell people what's going on in the game. You're not there to cheer for the team that employs you. Yeah. So that's one thing. And the other thing that he learned from them is that baseball requires a high level of storytelling because there are going to be a lot of dead spots in a game. And that was probably the thing that made him basically indispensable in LA. I mean, he is still the most important Dodger since they've moved. Um, Just because he was the most direct link to the fan base. And they all hung on every word. I mean, they still tell the story about how, you know, he's at the ballpark one day and he suggests that they all sing, you know, sing happy birthday to the umpire. And because 45,000 people at Dodger Stadium were listening on their transistor radios, they heard him prompt them and they sang happy birthday to the umpire. Oh, my God. <laughs> which is a weird way of flexing your muscle. Yeah, I was going to say. But it is say, the most like, compelling way. There's it, like it, an it, element of it's sinister for sure to have that control over people and yet also to be able to have it just to use that control and have them do something nice because you thought it would be a pleasant thing to do is a very, very Vin Scully thing. Yeah, no, it, he, he was brilliant at that. And he wasn't, I mean, I think the most important thing is people don't want their broadcasters to do their cheering for them. That's what their job is. They want the information by which they can make their spaniel brained judgments on whether this guy can play or that manager is an idiot. You know, but they want to know that they're getting a, a square count from the guy who's telling them what's going on in the game. Yeah. And the other great advantage that he had was when he first got the job with the Dodgers, you know, essentially fresh out of Fordham, he was a blank slate around which smart people could say, now here's when you do this and here's when you do that. And he was so confident in his own skills that by the time the Dodgers were in LA and he was broadcasting Sandy Koufax's perfect game in 1965, he says what the last pitch of the game is. And then he backs away from the microphone rather than screams into it and just lets the crowd be the music. Yeah. And I think in some ways, his greatest skill was that he was a musician. He could hear the song in his own head and reproduce it. That's the part of it that, that blows me away. I read like everybody, I think like the transcript of that 65 game is out there. I like found it at salon.com, but it's all over the internet. The, of that last inning and the presence of mind, like of not just in terms of, because there's sentences in there that I feel like, I would have been proud to write after three hours of trying to force them out of my brain that he's just coming up with off top at this incredibly, you know, tense and dramatic moment. But there is also, it's that other bit that you were talking about, which I think like the musician comparison is really funny. I hadn't seen it. And I think it's like instructive in that way that like, it's a question of like understanding this as, more than a task involving talking, or at least in, as sort of like part of an interplay of the game itself, the people that are there, the people that are listening, and then you, maybe last of all, instead of sort of trying to uh, either like oppress everyone with your virtuosity or like act like you know what's happening in a way that necessarily you can't when you're watching a baseball game. Yeah. 
Well, because he didn't add to the tension right. because the game was providing all the tension there was. In fact, I mean, he knew he the, didn't have to. That part is like, yeah. And that's like, that's the lost art part to me. Like, yeah. He trusted that the game would take care of itself. I mean, and that was an extraordinary game in that the Dodgers won one to nothing with one hit. I don't think that I was it. That there was one hit in the entire game. And so was this did that game take like 70 minutes? Was it like as long as a whole? You're not movie? that far off. It was 143. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, and, and that was another thing is that, you know, it, it's easier to be a lyricist. And when the games aren't going 350. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm not anti long game, but there's a lot of dead air in a game. And if you don't have a ton of stories, then you're, you're stuck yeah. because even now when, when the, when the broadcasters are hired by the marketing department so that they can have these guys sell more t-shirts rather than tell you about the baseball game. Um, there's still a lot of things that you have to fill in to make a broadcast worth sticking for. And because he was the bridge between Barber and Harwell and, you know, the, the, the crop of announcers we have now, I mean, he was the template. I mean, almost everybody at some point in their career as a baseball broadcaster tried to sound like Scully, either unconsciously or actively. And he outlived all of them. Yeah. You know, he just says, okay, you're imitating me, but... I'm the me that everybody wants to hear. So good luck with that. It was, I mean, it was, it was diabolical is a right word, but <laughs> I think it, it, there was a, he had a level of self-assuredness that said, I know what works for me and I'm going to do the best thing I can do to get me from first pitch to last pitch. And then tomorrow I'll do it again because I've done it for 50 years before this. I mean, he had the gig for 67 years. And even in his last year, he still hadn't lost it. Yeah, I mean, to be, in your, to be in your late 80s and still be the guy that everybody wants to hear because you haven't become a drooling idiot. I mean, something to aspire to. I mean, well, I've already I've already lost that race, but I think there's still, you know, there's a challenge for anyone that wants to talk in public. Just see if you can be good at it for uh, two thirds of a century. Yeah. It's easy. Just the bit, anybody. The bit that blew me away about, the, I mean, obviously those numbers and that accomplishment is like, again, it's just very difficult to process. Like 67 years of anything is difficult. I think like hard on the back for one, but it is the idea of staying engaged not just staying sharp and staying good because i you know people get older and some stay sharper than others or whatever to me like remaining interested is like the secret sauce for any like sports writing sports talking sort of career and you can tell i think when the light goes out they're like and i'm not gonna like drag any you know veteran people by name but i remember when i first encountered your work right i was working this was one of my first jobs in writing was writing a morning blog for the Wall Street Journal called The Daily Fix that was like a roundup of sports writing about various different stories. I am not somebody that should be assigned a morning anything, uh, and I was not the best at it. But I remember like Google News, it basically would serve stuff. And that was where I first started reading your stuff. And, you know, not to blow smoke or whatever, like it's different. You're a different type of writer than a lot of these guys. There's a lot of brand name types that I sort of encountered and the columns were all shaped perfectly, but it was clear that like a light had gone out that like, maybe they were just sick of writing about the fucking Cubs. And that's normal. I think that there is a time in everybody's life when they're no longer engaged with it. The bit that Eric Nussbaum wrote in his bit about Scully that I thought really underlined this was like the degree of, of sort of curiosity that he retained, that he wasn't just sort of doing shtick in a consistent way at a very high level. I mean, to a certain extent he was, to a certain extent everybody is. But he also 
was still interested in baseball and baseball players in a way that made it possible for him to create this humane and sort of like fascinated space in every broadcast. And that can't be easy. No, but you know, when, when you make your peace with the idea that this is the thing you've always wanted to do and you never want to stop doing it, you'll find the fascinating thing. I mean, you know, he's like every other person in media or anything else here. You know, he he would show his age in some attitudinal things from time to time. I mean, yeah, he was, like that was after the, the people Kaepernick pointed out, they were like, not a big fan on socialism. Uh, you know, like people like nudging me with that on Twitter. And I'm like, yeah, man, yeah. like he's fucking rich and 94. I don't yeah, expect him to I have mean, a nuanced take on Maoist third worldism. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, it's it's the thing where he didn't become sort of a demagogue. Yeah. You know, he he always had the ability to say, I'm an adjunct to the thing that I'm broadcasting. I'm not the thing. And there's so little of that now because the producers and the, and the marketers believe that the media is the most important thing. Yeah. And the fact is Vince Scully was the most important thing because he didn't believe that crap. Yeah. It just no no no. I'm, the baseball game is what I'm here to do. I'm going to do the baseball game. I'm going to do it as well as I can. You know, I mean, I don't know if you ever heard the thing where he's wishing three or four people happy birthday, and it's April twentieth. So of course he gets to wishing, not wishing Adolf. He merely says, and this is also the day that Adolf Hitler was born, <laughs> and then he theatrically spits. Yes. Patui is how yeah. I see it transcribed, which is yeah, the, the full on Spike Jones kind of <laughs> comedy spit take. How fucking hard are you feeling yourself if you're doing a baseball game and you're like, you know what? I think I can bring Adolf Hitler up without killing the vibe in here. Like, I think I can pull that off. And, and he did. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the thing. And maybe, you know, maybe some of the things he did don't work now. But the truth is he couldn't do anything other than what he did. Right. And it's true of most it, people. I mean, it's a question many, of how you get used. Yeah. I mean, how many baseball broadcasters do you actually know anymore? I mean, just I mean, there's the you, ones that, you know, like in terms of play by play guys, I think that there's like three guys that are like nationally agreed upon as being really good. And then it seems like with color commentators, with the ex player community, that those guys, it's like you hit start the clock on them when they begin maybe you get a good couple of years but then at some point they curdle uh either because like with a-rod there's like this weird sort of like people pleasing like him talking about bunting all the time during broadcasts and it's like buddy i know you don't care about that shit like you never did you never bunted yeah and so the <laughs> so the idea that this but i feel like he's trying to like signal to an audience this goes back to what you were saying about who actually pulls these broadcasts together that he's trying to signal to an audience that he doesn't understand and that's fine i mean i wouldn't expect a rod to understand what normal people want but i feel like a lot of the people behind this fundamentally and this is a not just a baseball problem but very much a baseball problem don't really understand why anyone would like baseball well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, A-Rod was only trying to, you know, repair his image. Yeah. That's why he did broadcasting. And now I don't know if he's still doing it. I mean, he owns he owns the Minnesota Timberwolves. He doesn't even have to anymore. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, you know, it's a job that everybody recognizes is really finite and that the next marketing guy is going to come in and want to change the entire broadcasting crew. Like when when uh, Dennis Eckersley retired the other day or announced his retirement, after 22 years of doing that, it never seemed like it was 22 years, but he, he just basically flat out said, you know, I'm just done. I'm just done. I yeah. mean, you know, it's... And that, that goes back to the thing you said before, is that the trick is to never get bored and always find something that's either fascinating to you 
or fascinating to the people you're telling it to. Yeah. But one way or another, you got to know when to leave. I think that's like, that's a great skill to have in life in general, but it makes sense, especially someone like Eckersley, who's like, was very much like a vibe based performer anyway. Like I remember when he was playing that he would give these quotes that were like, it's insanely colorful to the point of being effectively impossible to parse. But you could kind of get it because it was the guy with like the Dorothy Hamill haircut just like weighing in on something. Yeah. And but like but that was who that he goes, was. It goes. Yeah. And that, that's who he was as a player because once he, you know, fought off his demons and he had many, um, he was always the guy, win or lose, who would sit and talk to as many writers as wanted to talk to him. And not only that, he had a jargon that he made understandable. You know, you just, you heard it enough times, you go, oh, that's what I mean. That's what cheese is. I got it. You know, you know, the walk-off piece, which was his, you know, I mean, just, he just, he just, he had that same level of confidence as, I know what I'm talking about. If you pay attention, you'll get the context. Yeah. Can so you he didn't, didn't, treat, he didn't of... treat the listener. He didn't treat the listener like the moron that most of the listeners are. And they eventually caught on. Yeah. I would say that as a confirmed moron, I always appreciate that. It just seems nice. Uh, we should remember a guy. And then I've got one fun bag question, but I, uh, <laughs> I was, trying not to just spend the whole uh, episode just talking baseball bullshit with you. And like, we basically did it, but I want to, we're going to do a guy. Uh, are you ready to remember a guy, Ray? I'm, I'm fully prepared. All right. Uh, it's Jeffrey Hirohito of Japan. <laughs> not a lot of people celebrate his birthday. <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> the, so Jeffrey Leonard is a guy that I'm asking about because I remember him as the first dude that I saw, in Major League Baseball and and thought like, wow, that guy seems pretty badass. You maybe covered him when he I was did. with the Giants. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, what there was about Jeffrey Leonard beyond the hitting a home run and then running around the bases with one arm down for no reason? Like other than the stuff I thought was cool when I was nine, uh, take me inside the game, would you? Um, he was a guy who knew that he looked foreboding. Mm-hmm. And that his background coming from Philadelphia made him more foreboding. And he used that as a, as a weapon, but he was not an inherently hard guy. He played it being one. And it didn't hurt that Mike Kruko nicknamed him penitentiary face. <laughs> um, but he, you know, he could ward off people he didn't want to deal with by looking mean but if you could carve your way through that, he showed that he was an incredibly smart baseball guy. Um, you know, probably could have been a major league manager, but you know, who hired guys who have the nickname penitentiary face? Yeah, um, which is funny. I mean, like the obvious answer to that would be like someone who wants to like have a respected voice in the locker room or whatever. But that's not. Yeah. I mean, you can see who gets hired as managers now. It's like guys that led the. Bible study more or less across the world. But even before then, one of the smartest baseball people I ever encountered was Willie McGee. But because he looked like Willie McGee, he was never going to get a managing job. Because even back then, there was a there was a certain element of of managerial hire, which was theater. You know, we if this guy is going to be the spokesman for our team on a day to day basis. We want him to be appealing to the fans. Which you know, is, a, which is thing, Yeah. But, and also the thing that we're not saying here is that like, yeah, this is like not even a long time ago, ownership being like, and we think our fans don't want to see a black guy giving a press conference after every game. Oh, no question. That That's, yeah, there's no question about that. In fact, I'm not convinced that they're still not there for the most part. Oh my gosh. I'm absolutely convinced that there is. I mean, I think that you can still see that, that there's, when teams take chances on black managers, it's like Dusty Baker is not a like a controversial hire at this point. Like he's a fucking national treasure. The idea that like when a new black manager is hired, when a guy that was like a player at, I mean, certainly Willie McGee was the most annoying baseball player of my youth, but he was incredibly good. You could see as a player, just again, go back to what we were talking about before. Like what was annoying about him was that he always got on base 
he always took extra bases wherever they could be found. Like the guy understood baseball in that way that only a certain type of genius could. I didn't know that he had ever, has he been like a bench coach and stuff? I know Terry Pendleton was. That whole team was just like annoying as hell, but brilliant. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Whitey Herzog taught a bunch of guys baseball and learned baseball from all of them too. I mean, there's a, there's a reason why he lasted as long as he did in St. Louis. And it's not just because they won. It's because players played hard for him and they played hard in part because they thought there was sort of a partnership there. And you mentioned Dusty Baker and there are a lot of people who still to this day blame him for Mark Pryor. Yeah. But the fact is when Houston hired him, they hired him for a specific reason, which was he's a good guy. People like him and everybody hates us. Right. right now. It was that part of it sucks. It's like the same way that Ron Rivera is like a deserving enough NFL coach, but like very obviously a token for Washington because they want to have one guy in that organization that everyone thinks has some integrity. But here's the thing. There's a value in that because it wasn't that long ago that if you needed your image burnished as a team or as an organization, you'd hire the bland white guy. You know, I mean, just, you know, the Astros hiring Dusty Baker was actually a stroke of genius because yeah. they needed they needed the things he had and they were at least smart enough to recognize that they needed this because everybody in the organization was sort of you know painted with two coats of filth yeah it so definitely complicates somebody, the yeah they needed somebody that you know maybe he's a little bit behind the times on analytics but he's a guy who know, knew a clubhouse and yeah, this was something he had to project it I was going to ask that. I mean, we can talk about it the next time you're on, too, because we've we've gone on. But in terms of like what managers actually do has always been kind of like, especially at the highest level in baseball and stuff like that. They're not like teaching these guys how to do a drag bunt or whatever. Like they're all professionals. They're millionaires at this point. There's and yet like there is something about that ability to not just like elevate a brand, but to like get people to work together who might not otherwise want to work together. That is like, it's remarkable. And I think it makes sense that it's as little understood as it is because it is, I mean, fundamentally that's like one of the most challenging things to get any group of human beings to do just like to stop beating each other's heads in for five minutes and start working together. Well, I I can't remember who said this, but it was a long time ago. They said the, the trick to managing is keeping the five players who hate your guts from convincing the 15 people who don't have an opinion one way or the other from hating your guts too. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's largely a, it's largely a people position and baseball players want three things, you know, figure out a way that makes us a good team. So it's fun to come to work every day, put me in the best positions to succeed and make me money. And the best managers can do those things, you know, and, you know, it takes, you know, A, knowing what makes them tick, B, finding the positions in which they can excel and finding enough players that you can do that with that you have a team like, you know, the Royals in 15. You know, nobody thought that Ned Yost was a nuclear physicist at the time, but they played hard for him. Yep. You know, and, and they, they were all somehow in the right place at the right time. You know, that yeah. that's like if it's whatever Buck Showalter's genius is, if it's just making sure that Daniel Vogelback never sees another left-handed pitcher while wearing a Mets uniform, then he'll have done a lot. And he'll have done a lot for Dan Vogelback too, I think. So Oh, no question. I mean, that's that's the trick. It's, you know, and the guys who make the guys who think it's more complicated than that are the ones who miss it. Yeah. All right. So we're going to do one fun bag question and then dip out. Uh This is from Jim, um, a writer that I have worked with, uh, and also a guy that I hung out with briefly in Charleston, South Carolina, which is where our question is set. We in Charleston have a tenuous relationship with our tourists, he writes, who are often bachelor or bachelorette parties. You ate at a restaurant called Chubby Fish, I did, um, with my wife when we were there, uh, where Danny McBride and Walton Goggins and Andre Benjamin hang out. 
every year they give their staff, it's a fancy restaurant. We just had oysters and a beer. Uh, every year they give their staff two weeks off of paid time, uh, two weeks of paid time off. You can go away, get your income, recharge, smoke weed, whatever. We're currently in that dead period and the pizza shop where I work and the bar where I hang out are at the opposite end of the block. So people who are in town will park and walk the whole block to Chubby in searing heat, read the signs, and then resignedly crawl back to their cars. If I'm outside when they make the walk back, I'll politely let them know that Chubby Fish is closed for two weeks. They fucking hate this. My question is, is this as funny as I think it is, or should I get my ass kicked? It's rude, but it's also like watching your friend trip over a Charleston brick and then saying, hey man, watch your step. What are the boundaries when it comes to trolling strangers, Ray? How, uh, how should one do this? Because I feel like to a certain extent, uh, it's like acceptable and maybe even preferable to be annoying to other people in a way that you find funny where you can. Yeah, but, but I think there are limits. Well, yeah, well, the the trick is not to punch down. If it's just like innocent old folks, you know, I think you give them a pass. If it's yep. somebody who's going to cop an attitude about chubby fish being closed, then absolutely, you know, be as yeah. subtle as you want or be as you know brutal as you want. You know, just, that, that's practice. People who ask for it that ought to get it. And in fact, it reminds me that my wife and I are going to Charleston in a couple of months for a week. And we had so a good time. Chubby fish then. better be open or somebody's going to have to get shot. Yeah, I think, well, Jim uh, is familiar with your work. And so at the very least, if you were trudging back to your car after it didn't work, uh, like, I think he wouldn't say shit. Like, he'd know. Yeah. But yeah, it's great. We can, uh, we can do restaurant recommendations off the air, but we had a, a really nice time there. Totally fucking haunted. Really uh, strange city to be in, but um, you can eat really well and, and it's very beautiful. Uh, Everybody I've talked to says you eat great there. We're just yep. hoping that it's not 146% humidity. Yeah, I I think I have some bad news for you on that one. But again, we can do that uh, off air. Ray, thank you, as always, for joining. It's a delight to talk to you and work with you. And uh, yeah, I appreciate your time. Brandon Nix and Chantel Holder are our producers. Nora Ritchie is our executive producer. Our theme song is by the legend Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to us... You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe this podcast or other podcasts, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. And go subscribe to defector.com too, please. Thank you, everybody, and bye. Bye, boys and girls. <laughs>